the thread through all of that was, you know, the, the, the intersection of race and class, okay? And we were quite vocal about that. And, and you know, the workers very much appreciated it, frankly, because it was, I think, the first time in many of their lived experience where the organization was articulating uh, their day-to-day -day experiences, okay? And, and so we, I remember, you know, the, the best, the best uh, way, I think, to, to give you just an anecdote about that is we had a really big rally in, in February of this year. One of our nursing home leaders, a woman named Gloria Duquette, said, you know, uh, we're talking a lot about the pandemic, but some of us have been suffering for, from a pandemic for a real long time. Uh, black woman uh, leader. And um, it's not just uh, people getting killed in the street by police. I see my black mothers and my black sisters getting sick and dying uh, in the facilities. And it's time for the political leadership in the state that funds our work to take their knee off of our neck. So th that, that to me said a lot about the fact that uh, the conversation that we were forcing uh, about how this level of suffering and pain and death was being made invisible to elected leadership, that, that helped me to understand that we were doing something that, that had changed the character of the organization uh, in some very, very important ways. Hey, this is Stephen Pitts. I'm host of the podcast, Black Work Talk. And we're starting season season two today. And I'm excited because we're going to have miniseries during the season. And the first miniseries on black labor. And my co-host is my longtime friend, Bill Fletcher. Bill, thanks for coming on and helping out. I really appreciate it, man. Steve, I'm, I'm glad to be on. And it's funny, when I hear season two, I'm thinking about like season two of The Wire or Blacklist or something. So uh, I'm ready to rock and roll. Well, given that the wire season two is on labor, mm -hmm. it's appropriate that you're here indeed, for that. Indeed, okay? indeed, that's a good point. But a couple of things we get started, man. Um, now, you, you, as you know, and some of our audience knows, you both let off season one last mm -hmm. year, and you closed season one. Um, but some people may not know who you are. Tell me a bit about who you are. Um, not for me, I know who you are. I know the skeletons, by the way. But for the people who don't know you and you don't want my skeletal view of you, tell me a bit about you, man. Uh, you know, this is this is always a uh, a more difficult question to answer than people think. But the uh, I was born in New York. I, I identify as a New Yorker, uh, but I've lived most of my life in uh, Boston and now in uh, the D.C. area. I live in Maryland. I've spent most of my adult life in the trade union movement. Uh, became active though while I was in high school, uh, student activist, and and then in college where of course I met you, um, and then got involved in the labor movement after graduating, and I've been a rank and file member, I've been a staff member, I worked at the National AFL-CIO, uh, I was uh, the president of Trans Africa Forum for a number of years. And now I make a living as a consultant, but I don't, my identity is not that of a consultant. It's, it remains that of an activist, a labor activist and an international activist. Let me add one other part of your identity. If I can identify you for myself, mm -hmm. um, you're very much interested in building power because you know, we've talked about things for way too many years. Mm -hmm. And either directly or indirectly, a, a core issue is that of power building. Yes. And when I look at, at kind of the, 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 the world around us today, that to me is a central problem. You know, that we don't have power to build a world we know is a better world. And, and facts aren't really what's driving the problem. It's a lack of power. And, and so one thing to be a, be a dominant theme throughout season two is the question of building power. In particular, I'm going to get your take on this, Bill. Mm -hmm. My sense is that when you examine kind of the, the, the black activists floating around the universe, let's say, there's kind of a gap between the power that they have, like I say we have, one of the two, and real existing power. Do you think it's really a problem, a gap? Do you think it's really a problem that, that we face? 
I think we got a real big problem, Steve, in part because, um, you know that saying, speak truth to power? Um, you've heard that. People use that, right? Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. think, you know, increasingly I feel like the statement is very romantic, but and, and it's also wrong. You, you don't speak truth to power. You confront power with power. And, and I think that uh, there's too many people that believe that our job as people on the left, people progressive, is to uh, confront power with uh, thoughts, ideas, confront power with our feelings, but not confronting power with power and understanding that this is a fight. Uh, and and so this leads to uh, a lot of individualism, uh, a lot of uh, a displaying of dramatics, as opposed to really organizing with the objective of winning. Uh, I, I have said for years, Steve, that much of the left, I'm convinced, is not really interested in living, or excuse me, winning. It's interested in... Um, displaying points of view. And, and when you're engaged in a battle to win, it's a messy battle, uh, but it's a, it's, it, it's a battle that you have to undertake. Um, and so I think that there's a real challenge in the movement about whether or not people are sincerely interested in winning. And winning means fighting for power. Now, some of you may not believe this, Bill, but you're much more diplomatic than I am. My snarker response is that people speak truth to power and power to want to listen. Mm-hmm. And it kept on flowing. You know? right. um, but in the course of your response, Bill, you, you mentioned the need to be serious about organizing. Yes. One reason for this mini-series on black labor is a question of organizing black workers mm-hmm. and addressing the larger problem of power. I think back to how there's a lot of critiques of, of black liberalism Black centralism, centrism rather, mm-hmm. but we don't have the ability oftentimes to, in a powerful way, confront that. You know, we, we talk about how um, James Clyburn in South Carolina saved Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw what happened in Buffalo, New York, with that black centrist guy basically allied with elites in the Democratic Party and allied with GOP folk and won in Buffalo. And a lot of examples, I think, inside the kind of the black space that we don't have, have power. And I think that organizing black workers is important to, to, to resolve that. Um, so your thoughts on the role of, of black workers and organizing black workers as black workers to address this question of power? Well, first thing, just as a side note, Buffalo is more complicated than the left is uh, uh, acknowledging. And uh, that's about all I'm going to say right now. Um, so we're having a special episode we're on gonna, the truth behind yeah, Buffalo? something like that. Um, okay. You know, I think that when we talk about power in black workers, we have to talk about power in the workplace, and we have to talk about power in the communities. And, um, and so in the workplace or in industry, uh, there's the question of black worker power as part of a larger working class movement and the extent to which black workers uh, n- not only can influence what happens at the so-called point of production, mm-hmm. but to what extent they can influence what happens in uh, the trade union movement, if they happen to be in that. In the, uh, in the community, there has been regularly a tendency to ignore the black worker except to the extent that he or she is seen as a foot soldier in a movement. But that leadership in the community all too often defers to uh, the professional managerial class, to the ministers, to the academics, etc., to business people. And, And sometimes this deference is done in a way even within the black working class or among black workers where, uh, by way of example, you'll have those that will be advocating one or another form of black capitalism uh, 
and making the argument that black capitalism is the solution for the community, including for the black worker. And there are many black workers that go for that. I mean, I told you that story before about uh, speak, you know, being at the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists Convention a couple of years ago, and this presenter was giving this impassioned address about how uh, the black, uh, black business uh, is suffering because black people will not go to black businesses, and we go to white businesses. And that if we all went to black businesses, that we would be up there with Jews and Asians. And it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and what bothered me was that people, this is a trade unionist, they were going for this. And, and her argument was completely ahistorical, but she did it in such a passionate way. And she got a standing ovation. Uh, and so there's a struggle, there's a class struggle within our community that we have to take up. You know, Bill, hearing you talk, I, I, I think that one of the reasons for that situation is that black worker, are black workers aren't actually organized as black workers. And so you have overlap and distinction between the interests of black workers and black elite. And to the extent that one group or the other is not organized, then the interests of that group will be elevated. Mm -hmm. And typically within, I think, the black community, you find the more organized sectors being those of the black elite. Mm -hmm. And, kind of, and they that, that kind of have hegemony over black politics, given that. So to me, part of the story is how do you actually help organize black workers as black workers? And to me, that leads into the whole question of, of, of unions and being one site where black workers actually are. Mm -hmm. And so an important thing I wanted to talk through both today with our guests, but also throughout the miniseries, is how do you build powerful organizations, which means, one, ones that have power, but also they have power and are politically aware, you might say. And so we don't need organizations of two, three, four, five people. We need scale to have it happen. But I always remember, as you know, I, I was able to go to a couple of talks, we went to a talk with Emil Gal Cabral back in the day. And, and one thing he said was that it's important to have soldiers but they didn't need to know where to shoot the guns. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why those two things are important. How you have a scaled up organization, that's the, having the soldiers, but the importance of some sort of direction or consciousness or political education is important. Then you know which way to aim the, the rifles themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited in this mini series to talk about the challenges for black labor to build up organizations the challenges of, of black leaders and organizations, and how we kind of build more powerful black worker movement. Say, Bill, this has been great, and we could talk forever. But I want to bring Rob into our conversation. But before he joins us, I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhoods bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our community to, to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. So I'm so happy that our, our first guest on the first miniseries of season two will be Rob Burrell. Um, Rob, make sure I get this correct. You're president of SEIU um, 1199 New England, correct? You got it. How long have you been president, man? Oh, man, uh, <laughs> losing track of time. But if, if memory serves, it was January 2019. So I'm coming up on year three. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Um, and really briefly, what's the, what's the nature of your membership, both in terms of the sectors you're in and the racial gender demographics? Great question. Um, so we, we cover two states, uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island, and we really are a, a healthcare workers local, uh, covering uh, you know a handful of hospital workers in Connecticut, much more of a hospital workers union in the state of Rhode Island, uh, where we have significant membership in acute care. Um, but in Connecticut, our, our identity is really as a long-term care workers local, uh, 10,000 home care workers. Uh, through the Medicaid IP waiver program through the federal government, 
about 4,000 group home workers um, who, who are in the private sector caring for people with developmental disabilities and mental illness, about 6,000 nursing home workers, and then we also have a public sector membership in Connecticut, which is significant, about 6,000 folks who really do social safety net work, Department of Children and Families, Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse, Department of Public Health, Department of Developmental Services. So, uh, you know, really the, 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 the healthcare safety net workforce in Connecticut. And, you know, demographically, I think we really are a, a super majority black brown union. Uh, you know, Connecticut's a state that's about 75% white and evenly divided between the, the, the folks of color are e almost evenly divided between black and Latino, small Asian and native uh, population in the state. But our, our membership is about 70 to 80% uh, black and brown, um, remainder working class white, and, and because it's healthcare, overwhelmingly female. So we really sort of are at the intersection of race, class, and gender in terms of the ways that our, our members uh, confront challenges on the job. So what does it mean to you to be a, be a black man leading a multiracial union? I understand it's predominantly black and brown. That doesn't mean that black and brown folk have the same interests necessarily, obviously. So what's some of the challenges and what does it mean for you to be a, the leader of a multiracial union like 1199 Northeast, New England rather? Yeah, I, I would say that the answer to that question is is very much still in formation, but more than anything, the, you know, the last you know couple of years, and and uh, you know, this has really been ongoing for for many years. A, a few things, you know, I think uh, Black Lives Matter in many ways, you know, brought uh, the voice of you know grassroots Black militants, uh, you know, back to social movements, including organized labor. Uh, from my perspective, from my perspective, they they brought you know uh, street struggle, okay, uh, back to, uh, to to the work that we do as leaders in social justice movements, um, and and you know in particular the pandemic uh, and, and the ways in which it was visited on essential workers generally, which you know anytime that we're talking about the working class. Uh, we know that the vast majority of our people, black folks, brown folks, are are working class. Uh, brought that, you know, front and center, but especially for healthcare workers um, and and folks who are really subjected to quite brutal uh, treatment uh, by employers and in some cases by elected officials. So, I I have always felt that as an organizer and a leader who is of African descent. Uh, one of the particular things that we need to do is to give voice uh, to folks uh, it, it, from our positions of leadership, from the bully pulpit, in advancing uh, you know, the, 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 the demands and the aspirations that people have just to be recognized as fully human, okay? Um, and to do that from the shop floor, to organizing drives, to the bargaining table, to our political action, to our community alliances. Um, and, you know, the challenge of doing that, of course, is to, you know, how do we uh, maintain unity between, as you talked about, a multiracial organization? Um, you know, it, how, how do we keep white folks on board with the, the questions of racial justice on the shop floor? Um, we, we, I think, have done a fair job of bringing along our white brothers and sisters together with uh, black and brown folks, but I, I would say that's very much a work in progress. It was made somewhat easier last year because we were able to to lead our membership in a discussion that uh, was quite sharp around the fact that even for white healthcare workers, your lives are less valued. Okay, when you look at the lack of availability of PPE. When you look at the challenges in terms of, uh, you know, get, getting uh, funding, uh, it, it, that is more difficult because the the face of a healthcare worker in the public imagination is that of a black woman. And so we have, you know, some of our white leaders who are starting to embrace that uh, in a deeper way. But I would say we have a long way to go before we we get to where I'd like us to be. How did you actually do that? Because we hear a lot of lot of talk. Um could be jargon and record, but the need to, to do that. 
But from my perspective, it's simply a, a distant perspective. I see gaps sometimes between our intentions and our practice itself. But you're there, kind of your feet on the fire itself, and you mentioned you made some progress. A little more, a little more detail on what you actually did, Rob, to do that? Yeah, so, so forgive me if, if I go on a little bit, but, but I, I just want to give you the context here in, in, that we were dealing with in Connecticut. I don't know that it's unique to other healthcare locals around the country, but workers in, in you know, the pandemic hit in early March, uh, mid-March, as all of us know, of uh, 2020. And very quickly, the, you know, the epicenter of the pandemic was in uh, long-term care, nursing homes in particular in this state. And in, in some places, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say it was apocalyptic, brother. Okay. Uh, nursing home facilities where 50% of the resident population died. 50%. Okay. Uh, two dozen of our members lost their lives. Uh, we had families where uh, multiple people in the same house died. Okay, workers brought the virus home to their parents, brothers, sisters, etc. cetera. Uh, thousands of our members became ill. Thousands of their patients died. Uh, in the early stages of the pandemic, I'm talking March, April, May, into June, and a little bit even into July of 2020, there were facilities where there was absolutely no PPE. We were putting out photos to the public of workers in trash bags because they had nothing to protect themselves. And I'll shock you by saying that, you know, uh, those photos, every single one of the workers, not by design, just in terms of, of who was affected, uh, was black. The response from the public health officials, literally, and I'm quoting, there's no problem with PPE in nursing homes in Connecticut. If people are wearing trash bags, it's mm. by choice. And we right. had political leadership in the state that was doubling down to protect those elected officials. We had facilities where bosses, right, publicly funded through Medicaid dollars, but privately operated and so for profit, were loading PPE into vans and driving it away from facilities as the workers were recording this on video. And so the workforce really knew that, that this was not an exaggeration to say that it was literally life and death. They were seeing their patients, their coworkers, their family members literally drop dead. Uh, I, I will never forget a phone call I got on May 4th of last year where one of our executive board members, a woman named Francine Bailey, you know, called me and she said, Rob, I killed my mother. Okay. And, and so conditions that brutal at the same time that we had, you know, brother Ahmad murdered, sister Brianna, murdered, brother George, George murdered, just put in, in stark reality, you know, the, the ways in which uh, black and brown folks in particular uh, were just getting run over by capitalism, um, you know, and, 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 and the ways in which our political economy says that some people's lives are just expendable, okay? We had all this rhetoric about essential workers and, and you know, our line is don't, don't call us essential, but treat us like we're expendable. And so we had literally hundreds of job actions uh, in facilities where workers were saying, you know, it, I'm not working another minute until you produce some PPE. Uh, we had to take some very aggressive action uh, against some of the political leadership in the state of Connecticut to get people just to pay attention. We had to scream as loud as we possibly could. Uh, and the thread through all of that was, you know, the, the, the intersection of race and class, okay? And we were quite vocal about that. And, and you know, the workers very much appreciated it, frankly, because it was, I think, the first time in many of their lived experience where the organization was articulating uh, their day-to-day -day experiences, okay? And, and so we, I remember, you know, the, the best... The best uh, way, I think, to, to give you just an anecdote about that is we had a really big rally in, in February of this year. And one of our nursing home leaders, a woman named Gloria Duquette, said, you know, uh, we're talking a lot about the pandemic, but some of us have been suffering for, from a pandemic for a real long time. 
uh, black woman uh, leader. And um, it's not just uh, people getting killed in the street by police. I see my black mothers and my black sisters getting sick and dying uh, in the facilities. And it's time for the political leadership in the state that funds our work to take their knee off of our neck. So th that, that to me said a lot about the fact that uh, the conversation that we were forcing uh, about how this level of suffering and pain and death was being made invisible to elected leadership, that, that helped me to understand that we were doing something that, that had changed the character of the organization uh, in some very, very important ways. And I would say we didn't do anything special other than listen. Okay, and, and, and uh, you know, and maybe articulate some of the things that people were saying, uh, but, but mainly it was just about uh, providing uh, in the moment leadership that was attempting to meet the moment. And I heard you talking, Rob, what I, what, I was, what I was processing and thinking about was that it wasn't, like say, a formal session where we talk about racial inequalities, but you simply put the union into battle to deal with certain actual conditions. Absolutely, I mean, this was not workshops, this was not political education. Uh, this was, you know, people were getting daily clubbed, okay, clubbed uh, in the head. And uh, we, we just took a stand as an organization that we were going to talk about it uh, in, in ways that were as radical as the moment uh, and, and let the chips fall where they may. And so, some of that was, you know, we had contracts expiring for all 25,000 of our members in Connecticut uh, in, in the spring of this year. So we'd already known that it was going to be a big year in terms of contract fights for us. But we, in the summer of 2020, sort of conceptualized how, how do we change the terms of the debate and stop articulating, you know, this is what we want, this is what we think we can win and start articulating this is what we deserve. And the way we framed that was, was in terms of a long-term care workers bill of rights. Uh, and so uniting the three Medicaid funded industries that we represent, home care, group homes, and nursing homes, we talked about a few key demands, a $20 an hour minimum for workers who were at the time making around 15, uh, retirement for all, so our, our defined benefit pension, and health insurance for all. You know, ending the, the absurdity of healthcare workers who can't afford to get healthcare themselves. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say that, that the elected leadership of the state looked at us like we were out of our minds when we started talking about it. Uh, the governor put out a budget in February of last year that had zero dollars for any of those industries. Uh, and through coordinated series of uh, uh, direct actions, civil disobediences, and most importantly, strike votes, we were able to make. Uh, really incredible games where in, in home care and in, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in group homes and in nursing homes, uh, you know, we achieved five and sometimes $6 an hour wage increases, you know, 50% raises for some workers. Uh, you know, pensions are now the standard throughout both of those industries and, and major improvements in health insurance. And then some, I, I think, really groundbreaking uh, contract language around racial justice. So, um, you know, for workers who just really went to hell and back, during that year, it was it was some really meaningful validation. But before I, I have a stream of questions for Rob, but Bill, any thoughts you might want to jump in before I keep running my mouth? Well, I'm actually curious about something, Rob. Um, to what extent do your members look to the union uh, in terms of their thinking about community issues and? Um, not just politics, but to what extent is the, the is the union relevant to them in the community? Yeah, I, I would say that that's a place where we are actually just having some some current conversations about how we you know step up the 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 caliber of our work. Um, you know, we really focus much more on state politics than on municipal politics. Uh, you know, and that is because you know the the state budget determines just so much in terms of funding and services for uh, our members. 
Um, so, so we have not really dug deep on, at the municipal level, and I'm not just talking about electoral issues, but in terms of, of you know, some level of community issues as well. Um, but for a number of reasons, I think that we've got to begin to change that and, and focus more on municipal work. So I, I think we've got room to grow. Uh, what I would say is different is that this is not so much the, the level of our you know, grassroots workplace leadership, but more in terms of coalition partners and allies. And we were able to build up a really robust coalition of clergy, um, uh, community organizations, and, uh, and labor unions that um, had a strong voice uh, and, and a racial justice voice in terms of, of state budgeting. Um, so it, it, from the membership level, I think we've got some work to do there. Um, but I think we've sort of set the stage to be able to do that. Kind of the direction of Bill's question, your answer, Rob. Tell me if I'm wrong, but haven't you been involved in the framework bargaining for the common good? Absolutely, yeah. And that was primarily with our public sector membership, yes. So, roughly for, for the audience, my take on what it is, and correct if I'm wrong, if I oversimplify things or get it wrong, the idea is how do unions use their power, the bargaining table, to expand the issues they're bargaining for? and go beyond um, the issues that are kind of prescribed by the workplace and bring into bargaining some issues that face more community members as well. That's a good kind of summary of the idea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for us, what that looks like is, you know, especially with our public sector membership, we, we faced, you know, a decade and a half now since the Great Recession of downsizing and cuts to the state employee workforce. Uh, we, we, in 2008, we had 9,000 state workers. We now have 6,000. And you know, our, our members do things like, uh, for instance, mobile crisis services, where if somebody's having uh, you know, a psychotic break or a suicidal episode, a clinical team will be dispatched to that person's home uh, to, to intervene and literally to save lives, okay? They can show up at, at, at three in the morning if need be. Well, I'll, you know, again, surprisingly, uh, that does not operate 24-7, 365 in all parts of the state. Example, Bridgeport is the largest city in Connecticut, 160,000 people, small city by national standards, but the biggest state, the city in the state, does not have 24-7, 365 mobile crisis coverage. So we you know, see in a really direct way in which the, the way that cuts to public service over time uh, leave working class folks generally, uh, black and brown folks in particular, um, you know, on the outside looking in, uh, in, in ways that can play out you know, in, 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 in loss of life, okay? in, in you know, ways that devastate families and communities. So one of our demands through bargaining for the common good was, okay, we need to now have mobile crisis be a 24-7, 365 uh, operation in every corner of the state. Nobody should not be with, nobody should be without access uh, to, to that type of uh, mental health intervention uh, that can save people's lives. Uh, we called for expansion of programs uh, to, to help people uh, move through uh, addiction. Right? There's places across the state where there's waiting lists of two and 300 people in, in a city like Hartford, uh, Connecticut. Uh, we talked about uh, reentry programs so that as folks are transitioning out of jails and prisons, uh, that they have mental health services and residential supports um, so they're not just sort of left to, to fend for themselves uh, as, as they uh, transition back into society. Uh, and so we were able to make some significant gains. And a lot of that work was, you know, quite deep connections with community partners who we actually brought into our bargaining uh, to talk about the ways in which, uh, you know, constituents and members in their organizations needed access uh, to those types of services. And, and yeah, we were able to, to, to get some, you know, many millions of dollars to expand uh, those programs. So I, I think that that frame of bargaining for the common good uh, especially for publicly funded or unions and, and, and public sector unions, um, is really the way that we've got to, to look so that we don't get caught uh, in this trap of you know, a, a, an improvement in conditions for public sector workers 
you know, ultimately is is something that the right, uh, you know, makes us pay for uh, by saying, you know, your tax dollars are just going to these, you know, greedy, lazy, uh, you know, folks at the Department of Motor Vehicles where you wait in line for two hours. We have a different story to tell, uh, especially with our membership who are human service workers that, you know, got into this, these fields to do God's work. You know, when I think about what you're talking about in terms of the, the kind of the, the alliance between the, the union and, and community groups and the robust coalitions you build, I think on both sides can bring challenges to that, right? And in terms of how well do communities deal with that whole, whole initiative. But I first want to ask you about the other side, about your members. Because my thing about the whole idea of bargaining for the common good and using the power of labor to expand the, the, the bargaining table into the issues. In some ways, you're asking members to shift how they use their power. So I, I want to get a sense of how your membership has been receptive to the idea of kind of broadening the scope of, of, of items that you, you fight for. Look, I, I'll, I'll tell you what's even, I mean, people were actually really excited about the idea of partnering with community organizations to expand services because the downsizing of the state workforce has been so dramatic over the past 15 years that it means that you know, people are, are just used to uh, dangerously short staffing uh, to being you know, mandated multiple days per week. And, and so what that means is you know, if a worker is scheduled to do a seven to three shift, uh, you know, and then the boss says, well, we're short staffed. And so we, you got you to gotta stick around. So you don't have a choice to go home. You got to stay from three to 11. Well, you know, for folks with kids, for folks with second jobs, for folks with, you know, uh, school or just life obligations, church or their softball league or whatever, it just destroys the quality of people's lives. Um, and then additionally, I would say a lot of the workers that go into these human service fields, you know, almost nobody does it uh, without having something deep in their life. I can think of a number of state workers that we have in Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse who are folks that either had mental illness themselves or histories of addiction, some of whom came through the very programs that they're now working at. You know, one, one bro Latino brother in particular just talks about, you know, I did a lot of dirt and, and caused a lot of harm running around the streets of Hartford, uh, you know, 30 years ago. And I have an obligation to give back. That's why I came back to state service. But now, you know, I feel like I don't have the ability to heal people because my caseload is twice what it should be. So an expansion of services means that I get back to doing the work that you know, I, I, I just feel so deeply called and connected to doing. That, that was a really a, not a difficult conversation for our membership, at least in this moment in time. As you're talking, the thing I was thinking about, Rob, is this whole idea that oftentimes we speak about community versus labor, <laughs> as, if, yeah. as if people are two different sides of the fence. Sure. But you're giving examples, and then what I hear you saying, Rob, is that people themselves weren't split, and and they saw that that both their lives and the job and the sense of themselves were improved by the expansion, expanding the nature of the of the fight that you were engaged in. Which is really, I think, a very important lesson to to learn and to absorb and and to to, to put forth. Yeah, it was really exciting to see people start to view the union as a an organization that could be broader than just their raises and their benefits, which you know obviously are critically important to anybody. That's why people are in unions. But you know, just to, to give you another racial justice, you know, sort of advance that we made in in our our private sector bargaining. You know, we got a lot of workers that commute from you know chocolate cities and cities to you know uh, really vanilla towns, um, and you know on the way to work, um, you know are steady getting pulled over by police, you know driving while black, um, and so one of the demands that we put into our our negotiating in nursing homes and group homes is that if if uh, those issues are taking place. Uh, the, and 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 uh, you know uh, and need to be addressed. That that we have contract language now, which I think is 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 a first in the country, that says that the workers 
and management will sit down and meet with local police departments to say, you know, there's a problem here that has to be addressed. Um, and, and that's really, really serious. And, and so, um, you know, I just think we, we, we just have to listen in many cases to the workers. If we are close enough to the workers, they will tell us. That came directly from the membership. Folks saying, you know, I keep getting written up because I get pulled over by the cops on the way to work. Okay, I get pulled up for being tardy, pulled, uh, written up for being tardy. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I don't think there's anything brilliant about that contract language. It's just about paying attention and listening to the workers and, you know, uh, understanding that, that their lived experiences, uh, if we are, are a little bit thoughtful, uh, can be captured in terms of our demands in ways that make a profound difference in the quality of people's lives. I mean, what, one other example, you know, the number of nursing homes where we just, we just look at da data from grievances. You know, 60% of the workers are Latino, 95% of the disciplines Latino. Problem, okay? And so again, contract language that said, you know, you will have an affirmative obligation as the employer to provide us with racial data in terms of who is getting disciplined and who is issuing the discipline because this bullshit's gonna end. We're tired, we're done, okay, we're done. Uh, and, and, you know, again, we, we won that language at every contract that we settled. We won Juneteenth as a paid holiday at every contract that we've settled. Um, I, I don't think there's anything revolutionary about that work. I, I think it's really hard to do, but it's not hard to think about if we pay some attention. Rob, so circling back to that contract clause that would have both union and management deal with the policing issues, has it been there long enough to get any sort of kind of evaluation of how, how it's worked out? I, I wouldn't say that we're quite there yet, um, but... Uh, I do know that uh, uh, this is an example where we'd have to screw it up, I would say, um, for it not to work well, because there was a real raising of expectations um, that I think changed the culture of the local. And the let me tell you, the culture was really good. Okay, I, 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 I'm not talking about this was a turnaround of the local where it was doing poor work and we, we saved it somehow. Local is a, a tradition of doing really, really good work. But this is an added piece that, again, speaks to the lived experiences of working class, black, brown, and white members uh, in, in a way that really resonated uh, quite, quite deeply. Uh, Bill, feel free to tell me that I misinterpreted what you said. I've done it many times, by the way. But when I hear Rob talk about kind of the expansion of the issues that they're dealing with, I hear that's one way of looking at how the lab, how the union is dealing with the workers' community issues. That, that, that I hear you saying that they said we have a problem with policing, and you dealt with that. And I would say, Bill, that's an example of, of the union taking up community concerns. Did you have a, a broader viewpoint than that, man, when you raised the issue? Well, I think that that is one example, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about... Um, uh, some um, things that have done by other unions over the years, over the decades. Um, the, uh, the Teamsters in St. Louis back in the 60s um, had a program actually of community organizing, of setting up uh, what they called community uh, stewards um, in different wards and precincts to get people, to org uh, people organized. Um, the packing house workers... Uh, in some cities, actually helped um, to build community uh, community associations. So there's a variety of different ways that unions have looked at it. And so I was just curious as to what the experience in 1199 NE was. We we did some of that work, as you know, Bill, uh, back in the late 90s as part of the Stanford project. I was I was involved in some of that work when, in the very early time that I spent with the union. It, and I mean, it was dynamic, right? I mean, we did work around uh, preservation of public housing in that city that, you know, really um, the only working class people who remain in the city of Stanford are folks who live in those public housing projects because the, the rents and housing prices are about what you would pay in New York City. 
Um, we don't have the resource to do that work all the time, but again, I want to I wanna push the envelope and look uh, for where there are opportunities to, to engage more in community struggles. What would facilitate you pushing the envelope further or harder? You use the adjective, man. What would facilitate that? I mean, some of it, honestly, is just uh, having, uh, having enough organizers to do the work. I mean, we, we, we are rich in uh, member leadership, but um, the last year has really taken it out of the staff. Um, I have never been around as committed a group of human beings uh, as uh, our uh, officers and staff and, and, by the way, and member leaders. Never been around as committed a group. Um, but we've just found it very, very difficult to, you know, fill positions. And, and sometimes it's, it's, uh, there just is a human element in terms of the number of fights that you can take on at one time. I raised that question, man, because, um, it's easy for people to talk a good game and not know how to put it in practice. You know, and, and while there are a lot of things that, you know, we could go to a club, go to a bar and lay out our, our wish list. But the question we come back to the real world was doable. So I always want when we talk about, about building power and we talk about trying to actually build strong organizations, that takes real work. It doesn't take some sort of manifesto that the three of us could write over the weekend. So I always want to get a sense of what are the challenges to achieving certain dreams and what are some of the obstacles in, in, in achieving those things. So it's good to hear those concrete things you, you raised. Rob, a couple of things I wanted to ask you before I shift gears a little bit. It's maybe too early to find to tell, but it seemed to me that if you look at the largest sort of racial reckoning that took place in, in, in the aftermath of George Floyd being being murdered, and kind of a seemingly shift in some level around racial awareness, racial action, and then you see what I call kind of the walk back you saw in some ways from the election itself, the the, the off year elections in Virginia, Virginia and so forth. To me, it raises the fact that when you see videos of black people being killed, it's easy for people to get engaged and be horrified, but it's hard to sustain that level of engagement sometimes. People kind of will, will backslide, you might say. I want to raise that idea out to you in the context you're mentioning that people kind of saw the light at some level around the question of race and pandemic, and wondering how you can sustain that idea beyond simply the, the, the horrific times of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that uh, we necessarily are going to have an option not to because the, the, the you know, look, we're long-term care workers, okay? We, these, these are not workers who are in sectors of the healthcare workforce that have a ton of power, right? Hospitals, acute care, that's where uh, there's, there's a lot of power. Uh, we, we don't have those pretty very much in, in our membership in Connecticut. So what that means is that everything is a tooth and nail fight. We've been on strike now for five weeks at a group home agency with 150 workers. Okay, uh, CEO based in Florida makes $325,000. Workforce is probably 90% black, probably 95% women. The family health premium at this place where workers were making $16 an hour I'm not misspeaking. $5,800 per month. Are you serious? There was not a single worker at this agency that takes the health insurance. Not one. Okay? So you know, the conditions are, are such that if we're not engaged in you know, really, really aggressive and, and serious fights, um, we're just going to get steamrolled. Okay? Um, you know, again, uh, downsizing of the state workforce. The state is closing a young adult services, 18 to 25-year-old uh, inpatient program, residential program for kids with mental illness, young adults with mental illness. Okay, these kids have been through experiences that would make your skin crawl. Okay, this is going to mean a 32% reduction in the available residential treatment beds for young adults in the city of Hartford. But they're just, they're just doing it. I don't think there's a way to talk about the conditions that our membership faces in most cases without having a discussion around race, without having a discussion that says, how is it possible that the state is going to be moving these kids 
out of places where they have relationships of trust that they've built with their counselors and their clinicians and their social workers, okay, that take months and sometimes years to be able to build, okay? Some of these kids may have really, really, really severe life impacts based on the ending of this program. And that's just one example that we could retell again and again and again in terms of what's been taking place. So I, I don't know how we talk about conditions for healthcare workers without having a conversation about race, about gender, and of course, you know, for working class people about class. I, I, I don't think we're doing, I, I don't think we're effective as leaders unless we are leading with that conversation. So Rob, given all of you discussed tonight, this afternoon rather, and things you've been doing for the last couple of years, where would you want the union to be in three years? So if, and you'll well, ask, look, I, 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 I mean, I, to me, the, the question, you know, writ large for the labor movement is, you know, are we going to lay down and, and, you know, get steamrolled? Or are we going to go on offense? And I, I would submit that, you know, for, for unions that represents, represent essential workers, you know, by and large, we have completely failed. Okay. I just think that we have failed. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that the experience of our membership in terms of how badly they've been mistreated over the past couple of years in particular is unique. I've never seen people so angry. Okay, and that is, you cannot separate that from Trump. You cannot separate that from police murder. You cannot separate that from, you know, anti-Latino and anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric and violence. Uh, all those things are connected. And, and so, uh, you know, to me, uh, the union needs to continue to really be the leading force. Our local needs to be, continue to be the leading force um, you know, in, in advancing a, a social justice movement in this state. And I say that with humility uh, because we're pretty good as unions go, but there's a million things that we don't do well. We've got a million warts and a million flaws. Um, you know, we've got to grow as a movement. But I think that if we, if we expand our horizons and focus a little bit less on what we think we can win, and talk a lot more about what people deserve and then fight like hell to achieve those things, uh, we are guaranteed to do better than if we continue uh, you know, to, to, to focus on survival uh, as opposed to uh, uh, advancing uh, demands that actually make a, a difference in people's lives. Okay. I, I want to begin to land this plane of the interview, you might say, and I have a couple of closing questions that aren't there are not yes, no questions, by the way, so it's not going to be a long landing. But um, Rob, how do you define black freedom? <laughs> wow. That's a deep one. Um, you know, I, I would say most fundamentally, uh, it, it's rooted in an understanding that the lives of our people are just as valuable as anybody else's that we have the freedom to dream, you know, to live, to love, to learn, to worship uh, in ways that others sometimes can take for granted, but that, you know, we just can't. I mean, I, I, I'll bet you if the three of us were sitting down over beers and we started talking about, you know, the people that we love, I mean, like really people that we love that are no longer here, um, you know, because of, of white supremacy. That would be a long and a real deep conversation. And um, I think we've got to be bold enough. And again, I, 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 I salute the comrades in, in Black Lives Matter. Uh, we've got to be bold enough to dream of getting beyond uh, a world that says that that's acceptable. Thanks for that. One, one feature of, of, of season one was I would find out what songs that my guests liked to, to hear. What songs kind of got you going in the morning, got you through the tough times. I actually made a playlist, playlist called um, Soundtrack for Our Liberation. So, Rob, you have the chance to be the lead song on the season two soundtrack, man. 
So what song gets you going, man? When you get when you're gonna share it with well, me? I want, well, I want. I, well, you gotta tell tell us what, what your song is, and you'd be the first one on the soundtrack. The song that got me through the worst parts of the pandemic pandemic was "Rise Up" by Andrew Day. Okay. okay. Uh, of course, anything by Bob Marley and uh, and and uh, Talib Kweli has been the soundtrack of of my life for the last twenty five years. Pretty much anything by that brother. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Um, what books or articles are you reading? Hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, I picked up a, a, a book of uh, Martin Luther King's sermons called Strength to Love. And I would just recommend that to, you know, to anybody. Um, I mean, it's just filled with, uh, you know, the beauty uh, and, and really captures his uh, his sense of the beloved community uh, that we're trying to construct. So uh, th- that, is, that is one that I, I always just sort of have on my nightstand. What was the, what's the title again? What to Love? Strength to Love. Okay. Strength to Love. Okay. okay. And Thank then you. I read uh, a book called The Southern Key, which, you know, uh, Bill and others uh, in, in some of our, our circles uh, have been reading, which I just think was outstanding. It was about race and class in uh, in, in uh, organized labor in the 1930s and 40s, and I, I believe has a lot of relevance for where we're at today. And then I, w- I will pick up just about any good science fiction that I can get my hands on. So I read a book called Gideon the Ninth, which was a lot of fun recently. So you and Bill could do an episode on science fiction, right? Y'all talk all day long on this thing. Absolutely. He probably knows a lot more than me, but uh, I, would, I would enjoy that, yeah. <laughs> Rob, thanks for coming on. You know, um, what really drives me in this second season is the question of power and how do we actually build power to change the world. And I think that power comes fundamentally from organization and building strong organizations. And that's a difficult task that far more difficult I actually know, by the way, but it's very difficult. And so to hear, have the audience hear what you're doing there in, in, in the trenches is super important because it takes the idea of building power away from the, the, the speeches and the slogans and now be the tweets and puts in the real, real puts it in the space of the lives of people who actually got to do the work. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you coming on, Rob. And, and thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks to both of you. I, I can't tell you how much it's meant to have this podcast uh, for me personally. Over the past year and a half, I just think it's a treasure. Um, and, uh, you know, just the, the two of you are people that I've learned uh, so much from. And uh, please don't stop doing what you're doing, okay? And, and thank you for the privilege of, uh, of giving me some time with you. This was a great way to start off season two. Too often we talk about power building and it comes off as an abstract idea. Rob brought us to the trenches of the battles of workers in SEIU 1199 New England. As members fought for dignity and the well-being, and in the course of these battles found the value of solidarity and their union, they built the power to improve their lives. Often, people exclaim that solidarity is a verb, not a noun. Listening to Rob, you saw that slogan in action as divisions among members lessened as they fought side by side for their rights. While we did not go deeply into the daily work trying to bridge the racial divides, we heard that a very necessary condition for unity is engaged in fights against common targets. The saying goes, necessary but not sufficient. That is true in many areas of life, and especially in the area of racial solidarity where too many leaders and organizers want to focus on the common targets and ignore the need to directly address racism. However, it is also true that trying to address racism without sending people into battle against the elites weakens our capacity to fight racism. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight you might not hear elsewhere. 
You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrades Facebook page. Thanks for joining me this week on the first episode of Season 2 of Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network for our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at Stephen at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until next time, stay safe and be well.